Yeah, as Andrew said, my name is uh, Jake, and um, I have uh, a good story for you guys today. Um, I think out of uh, all the all the parts of David's life, this would be the one that I would be like, yeah, this is this is the big one, the the showdown, the moment, um, David versus Goliath. Just hoping my slides catch up with me, but uh, if not, that's not a problem. We'll just carry on anyway. So, the story, David and Goliath, it's a well-known classic, a Sunday school type portrayal of a little boy beating up a giant big man. And that is often how the story is framed. And um, us looking to David... Um, and taking confidence in the fact that God used this small shepherd boy to defeat the evil giants of the world. And actually, we can take confidence um, that, he can, that we can um, face to defeat the own giants in our own lives from this story. And this was brilliantly demonstrated by the Raybones through their kids' work. Um, and this is all true and really important. Um, and, and actually, the story does test all of these things, but it's also scratching the tip of the surface here, because in this one story, we actually receive a number of incredibly important clues that point us ultimately to who Jesus is. So to set the scene, um, we've already seen that Israel had cried out to God for a king at the end of the book of Judges so that they could be like the other nations um, and they had someone to fight their battles for them. God had warned them that what would happen if they went ahead and chose a king, but Israel ignored them and continued anyway. They rejected God and his lordship over them. They selected Saul, an impressive man, with all of the physical attributes of a good warrior king. But we saw already that there were clues that something was not right. Paul, at the start of our series, mentioned that we see that Saul was from Gibeah. And uh, some of you might remember that Gibeah was a place where one of the worst atrocities in the entire Bible occurred in Judges 19. We're told that this was not a good place to be associated with. And as we see Saul's life um, happen and spread out that actually things start to spiral downwards because of Saul's actions. We see that the spirit of God left Saul to the point where God even regretted allowing him to be king and he was, he was possessed with an evil spirit. But up steps Samuel again and anoints David, the eighth son of Jesse, a largely irrelevant shepherd boy from Bethlehem part of the tribe of Judah and we're told that David is to be king and then quickly we find ourselves at this story of David and Goliath. So the story with a wonderful illustration a la Mike Goatman which uh, to help you visualize um, today. So we're told that the Philistines had invaded deep into Israelite territory and this is probably because they'd heard about Saul's weakness that was growing and they saw this as an opportunity to reverse the conquest and undermine the gains that Israel had made before. 
A giant warrior, Goliath, terrorized the Israelites morning and evening, morning and evening, which is significant because this would have been the times of the day where Israel would have offered sacrifices to God. This wasn't just Goliath being annoying or trying to assert some kind of dominance and push his weight around. This was a challenge to Israel's God. This sets up this story that it's not just a physical battle between two nations, but Goliath was taunting Israel in their moment of honouring God. This was a challenge of divine proportions here. And Israel needed a warrior in this moment. And it was supposed to have been Saul, right? He was a warrior. He was, had this reputation. He was selected by the people for a moment just like this. Yet they didn't find their warrior in Saul. They found their warrior in David a shepherd boy from Bethlehem. And the reason for this is because David, unlike Saul, remembered that he lived in a nation of giant killers. He remembered back to Joshua and Israel when they reclaimed the land of the giants, we're told, after Egypt, earlier in the biblical story. And, and David remembered that God was greater than any giant that they would face. We're told that Goliath taunted Israel for 40 days. And this links back to Israel's wilderness experience of wandering around the desert for 40 years. So maybe David, this new warrior, king, the person to take the place of Saul in this moment, was about to bring Israel out of the wilderness. Interestingly, we're, giving a, we're given a really detailed explanation of Goliath's armour, um, which is odd because actually in David's entire life, we never learn any detail really regarding his own armour, even after he becomes king. There's a clue here. Something about Goliath's armour is important in this story and we can't miss it. In 1 Samuel 17 verse 5, Goliath is described as wearing a coat of mail, according to the ESV translation. But actually, when we dig into the Hebrew behind this, the words Shion Kasketh Seth actually translate more literally as a body armor or breastplate of scales. We see here that Goliath is not just being depicted as a warrior, but a serpent warrior, a snake warrior. And this is no coincidence. Once again, we find that there is a serpent in the garden land of Israel. Remember the last time we met a serpent in the story of the Bible, we have to rewind all the way back to Genesis 3 in the Garden of Eden. And God said in Genesis 3 that an offspring of the woman would come and crush the head of the serpent. Israel needed not only a warrior to face the Philistine warrior, but a new Adam, a seed of the woman who could step up and face this serpent that was threatening Israel. Israel, the carriers of God's promise for hope and salvation for all the world. Israel needed a hero in this moment. And where was this hero? Well, at this point, he was back in Bethlehem, tending to his father's flocks. David's father sent him with food to his brothers. And when David arrived and witnessed what was happening, he stepped up. He stepped up and he told Saul that he would fight Goliath. And interestingly, Saul attempts to clothe him in his own battle armor, Saul's armor, making it really clear what Saul's strategy was for defeating this enemy of Israel, that of a sword and a spear. Saul thought that since Goliath was wearing armor, David too needed to wear armor. Israel had cried out for a king so that they could be like other nations and it had come true. And now in the face of another nation, 
a nation that Israel was almost trying to be like, who was now stronger than them and trying to invade them. Again, their king turns to the strategies of the other nation in order to try and, and compete with it. But not David. David remembers why Israel was different, why it was called to be set apart from the other nations. Why? Because they were God's nation, God's flock. Goliath, as we've seen before, had committed blasphemy against God. And now he was going to be literally stoned for his crimes. David chooses a sling, as Chris so helpfully told us about last week, um, which was a powerful weapon, a surprisingly powerful weapon, we found out but still not a soldier's weapon. Instead, this was the weapon of a shepherd. Back in Judges 20 verse 16, we're told that the Benjamites, the tribe of Benjamin and their descendants, were really handy with a sling. It literally says that they would aim at a hair, a hair and never miss. They would completely win, hands down, the kids' work challenge from the Rabbins today. There would be no hope. But interestingly, Saul was the Benjamite, not David. And yet here steps up David with a sling and out Benjamite Saul in this moment. And it's funny because throughout the rest of Saul's life, he is always depicted from then on with a spear. You, we have this weird detail every time that, and Saul was here with his spear and Saul did this with his spear and he lay down and slept with his spear. And, and actually it's interesting because even in light of God's victory that we will see in a second through David, through the sling, Saul chose to be like a Philistine king, reliant on the sword and the spear to rule. And we pick up the story in verse 48, 1 Samuel 17, 48, and, and it reads like this. It says, when the Philistine, that's Goliath, arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly towards the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of his sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines. Goliath was dressed like a snake and died just as God said the serpent would in Genesis 3. An offspring of Eve had stepped up and crushed the head of this serpent warrior. So we're left thinking, is this the moment then? Is this, is this it, the moment of ultimate victory? Surely an offspring of Eve has stepped up and crushed the head of the serpent and not even with the weapons of this world, but with faith and trust in God. Is David this promised Messiah, the King of Kings, the one who would rule all and, and fulfill what God had said? Interestingly, David cut off Goliath's head and we're told later that he sent it to Jerusalem, which was a place many centuries later where one of David's own offspring would win a major victory against Satan, the serpent at Golgotha. And for those of us who know our Bibles, we know the end of the story. Already we, we know of the fact that there was another battle to come. And, and we have an echo here that tells us that actually this battle of David and Goliath is not the battle to end all battles. We're not there yet. And, and this is further confirmed because 
in the story of David, as we will see, Goliath was not the only giant that David had to face. Saul was also a giant of sorts, an Israelite giant. And like Goliath, he would come against David with a sword and a spear. David was about to find out that fighting an Israelite giant was trickier than killing a lion or a bear or even a snake man in Goliath. And in addition, whilst David will ultimately triumph over Saul, David would fight another giant. And this time he would lose. He would fight the spiritual giant of sin. The consequence of the actions in the Garden of Eden, that is sin, would inevitably defeat David and confirm to us that as great as David was, even in the moment of this big victory, he was not the new Adam. Not yet. But the blueprint had kind of been drawn. We had been given clues about what this Messiah person would be and what they would do and what they would look like and what this victory could mean. But the question was, would Israel remember? Israel had cried out for a warrior king to rise up and protect them against other nations to fight their battles, just like all other nations had. Yet they were shown that in David, this was not God's way. But if we fast forward to another time in the Bible, we see Israel again crying out for another warrior king, a king to rise up and overthrow a military power. But this time it wasn't the Philistines, it was the Romans. And it becomes such a fixation for them that when God sent his only son, Jesus, to be the one to win this ultimate victory, the fact that he was not a military king in their eyes, he was not a new Saul, was enough for ultimately the Jews to put him to death. Jesus, like David, was born in Bethlehem. In Aramaic, Bethlehem translates as the house of meat or literally the house of lamb. It was the place where young lambs were reared and grew up who were then later sacrificed in Jerusalem during Passover to atone, to carry the sins for Israel. Jesus would be called the Lamb of God he too was born in Bethlehem and he would go on to be sacrificed in Jerusalem for all sin as the ultimate Passover lamb. Jesus, like David, was not the most impressive, the tallest or the most handsome. He would win a victory, but not through the sword. And we see this in his reaction in the Garden of Gethsemane to when Simon Peter draws his sword and attacks a soldier that's trying to capture Jesus. No, no, Peter, you've completely got this wrong. Have you not remembered that God does not win through a sword and a spear. He wins through the tools of a shepherd. Jesus laid down his life for his flock as the ultimate sacrifice. He would not use the tools of this world, but was ultimately killed through the most brutal tools of the world that humanity has ever managed to come up with, the wood and the nails of crucifixion. But as the nails were hammered into his wrists and his ankles, we're left thinking, no, surely no, this cannot be right. This was supposed to be a victory. If not by a sword, fine. But what about by a sling or something? Jesus, what is going on? You were supposed to be the warrior, the ultimate king, far better than David. You were supposed to crush the head of the serpent, a new Adam, the ultimate Adam. What's happening? Yet at the moment when Jesus took his last breath and cried, it is finished. The moment when it looked like all was lost and the serpent had won. Actually, in that moment, the final giant was defeated. 
the giant that David could not defeat. The one who disguised himself as a serpent in the garden was beaten, finally. His tools of sin and death were defeated and the words of God in the Garden of Eden fulfilled Jesus, who came from the offspring of David. If we turn to Matthew chapter 1, Matthew gives us this genealogy that confirms to us that it was through Solomon, who was the son of David and Bathsheba. And as we've already learned, it was Bathsheba that was ultimately the biggest indication that, that David can't be this one. This was the one where he was defeated by sin. He took another man's wife for himself and arranged that man's death. This was the greatest moment, arguably, of David's weakness when he was defeated by the spiritual giant of sin, but God reached in, and at that moment of defeat, he birthed victory. In his grace, he reached in. He was not defeated by sin. And Solomon, who was the product of this sin, arguably, was it was through him and his offspring that later Jesus would come, that God birthed redemption and new life. And how often does God do this? In our moments of weakness and defeat, he births new life. And I get a sense that for some of people listening today, you're feeling defeated at the moment by something. And, and that seems like a giant to you. And God wants to birth new life for you, new hope for you today. That's, that's his promise. This victory means that all those who put their faith in Christ the victor will be saved from the powers of the serpent. That's what the Bible tells us. All those who place themselves in the flock of Jesus, his family, his church will be saved. We can cry out the words of 1 Corinthians 15 that say, Oh, death, where is your sting? Grave, where is your victory? Jesus has won. We can have hope that one day the whole world will be redeemed. All the hate, all the pain, all the suffering that we see around us will be no more. That hope is especially prevalent, I think, for us today and remembering and placing our faith and hope in Christ's victory. We're told that sadness will turn to joy. Tears will turn to gladness. Ashes will turn into be turned into beauty. That is what the victory has accomplished. Now more than ever, am I eternally grateful that I can have this hope in the victory of Jesus. This is why we praise. I remember being a non-Christian and going along to youth group and sitting at the side when people worship thinking you're all really odd and weird because what are you doing like why are you raising your hands up and shouting what is going on well this is why we praise because of the victory of jesus this is why because when we look at him and his victory all we can do is sing and praise and give thanksgiving and therefore i feel like the only appropriate way for us to finish right now would be to pray so i encourage you in your kitchens bedrooms sofas wherever you are right now just lift your voice up to god and say thank you thank you for the victory lord thank you jesus without you there is no hope there is no victory but you came you you lived the life that i could not and you chose to lay down your life for me a useless sheep so that i could live ultimately if you would not call yourself a Christian and are sitting there now thinking, actually, this hope, this hope sounds like something I want, especially as I look around what's going on at the moment, actually to have hope, to know that someone won a victory for me. Actually, I, I want to know this person. I want to have a relationship with the one who can turn all the hate, all the sin and all the death that we see in the world and in ourselves into love, joy and peace. Then you can't. Let me introduce you to Jesus right now. Ask him to come into your life. Reach out to him and he promises to reach out to you. Just invite him in and he will do the rest.
what a victory this is even the, the clues that were given to us in the story of David and Goliath only build our picture of what is going on with Jesus on the cross what a victory this was what a victory this is now Jesus is confirmed as the king of kings and we get to be in his kingdom and there is no better place to be.